Brought to you by the 2012 Toyota Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, did you ever watch Tales from the Dark Side back in the day? Yes. What, What do you remember about it? Um, I remember it was creepy tales, and I remember my brother and I love stuff like that, as well as tales from the crypt. Yes. So, like anything that we could amass of the horror genre, we were there. Well, of course, tales from the crypt, you had to have HBO access for that. So, yes, and our neighbors. Oh, they did. Had it. Okay. Yeah, the Harrisons. The Thank Harrisons. you, Harrisons. See, I had to watch it half scrambled, so it was sort of half imagination of what was going on with the uh, tales from the crypt. But then. Uh, Tales from the Dark Side, that came on at like 3 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon or something on cable. And that one always creeped the heck out of me, maybe more so than Tales from the Crypt. Because I think Tales from the Crypt came later for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there was always that fun, campy, you know, old school classic horror comics motif and all the puns. It kind of uh, disarmed you, like right from the get-go. You knew that you were entering a, a world where horrible things were going to happen. It was okay because it's just the vibe. But um, Tales from the Dark Side... The intro I remember as being like super creepy because it had like this really haunting music that was mm-hmm. like bum 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 bum, and then this this really old uh, terrifying narrator would come on and he would talk about how how we live in this surface sunlit world, but there's a dark side to everything, and that's when these these colorful scenes of like rural America suddenly turn negative, uh, like photo negative on you, and then the titles come up and they melt, and then some dark story begins. And sometimes the, the story was really scary as well. But that intro was always great because it was it was just setting you up for this reverse side of everything you take for granted and, and think is holy and normal in your life. So for you, it was the psychological aspect of it that really sort of arrested your imagination. Yeah, yeah, right from the from the get-go. Because the narrator was saying, everything you think, there's a reverse side to it that's creepy and awful and it will totally rock your understanding of reality. Okay, so we're going to attempt to do the same thing here. We're going to give a photo-negative image of creativity. Bum, 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 <laughs> the dark side. Right, because creativity is one of those things that we tend to hold up, at least you know, in our society and in our lives, we hold up creativity as this wonderful, awesome thing, and if you've got it, it's the best thing in the world, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's the stuff of art and the movies and music and everything. All the media we consume is born out of creativity. The jokes you hear somebody tell over dinner, born out of creativity. The dishes you eat, uh, creatively presented to you. It's it's the, the font of everything that you, you want in your life. So how could there be this dark side to it? How could the tales from the, the dark side narrator come in and mess this up for us. Uh, yeah, you're right, because there are hundreds of books about creativity and how to bolster your creativity. And we've talked about it in an evolutionary sense, too, that this was important to be a creative thinker right. uh, for our own survival and also to attract mates and so on and so forth. And we've seen this in nature. We've seen creativity in animals. So, yeah, how could it be dark? Well... There's this idea that uh, the dark side could emerge because of our creative tendencies to be wonderful, fabulous. Because essentially, when we're being creative, we're creating a kind of lie, right? We are altering our reality to a certain degree and telling a story about how things are or how they seem. Okay, like a, a fictional novel is essentially a lie about something that happened, even at like a finely prepared meal. 
you know, it doesn't taste like fish because it's kind of lying to you that it's <laughs> that it's it's not really a dead animal that washed up on the shore. It's something else delightful and wonderful. Um, and yeah, you can just yeah. go down the, the list of th- things. Any actor's performance is really con- convincing. They're kind of lying to you because they are putting on a show for you. They are pretending to be something they are not. Yeah, we've even talked about this with language and semantic distance. We've talked about when we talk about um, our cuts of meat. We don't necessarily say, hey, I'd love a cow burger. I'd love a hamburger. The way right. that we sort of cloak what something means to us or try to portray it to another person as something else. And then we have all these these different words for lies and different shades of lies, too. Like, take hyperbole, which I love to watch hyperbole in science headlines, particularly space science. And I've been on both sides of this. I've also helped craft some rather outrageous uh, space headlines before. But it's all, you can't just, you know, because you want people to see that headline and mm-hmm. read the article. So it tends to get out of control really quickly. And you get you get headlines like um, monster black hole gobbles down. You know, we, we tweak the language enough to where we're creating an image of this thing that is not the actual scientific content of the article. But that's not lying. And nobody argues that it's lying. But but there are all these different different levels of dishonesty, even in a creative headline on an otherwise scientifically accurate article. Well, it, it requires a novel approach, right, right, which draws directly on creativity. And so what we're going to talk about today is creativity in the sense of... Um, you know, could, could a creative individual be more dishonest than another person? Mm-hmm. And we're going to explore the idea of creativity and madness. We've touched on it before. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to look at uh, mental illness through the lens of creativity. But before jumping into all of that, I did want to mention that a good example of being a, an excellent, fabulous, but perhaps someone who is going beyond the bounds of storytelling facts is someone like Jonah Lair, who I think is really a great journalist in the sense that he is such a good storyteller. Right. And I, I don't know if anybody has um, heard about this dust-up, about some of his journalistic practices. It started off as a dust-up. I think it kind of yeah. ended up as more of a blow-up. I was going to say you know? sort of an atom bomb now. He had actually written a book called Imagine How Creativity Works, and it was withdrawn from the market by Lair's publisher when they discovered that he had fabricated some quotations in the book, uh, most notably one from Bob Dylan on his creative process. Right. And, and it's worth noting that at this point, he's already made a name for himself. He's already big news. He's right. been on Radio Lab multiple times. Mm-hmm. He, at this point, I think he'd already been on Colbert. I mean, he's he he was out there. He's a you know he's a good looking young guy. He's well spoken. He's very much in the same vein of the sort of the Eaglemans and the Neil deGrasse Tysons of the world, where they're they're great at communicating science, both in print and in person. Right, and that's what I think is sad about the story because here's someone who's really committed to mm-hmm. the story of science, and he finds all these different gems, and he kind of makes this. The the whole sort of theme of science sparkle for people. Um, and he does this because he is such a good storyteller. Again, though, the problem is, is he's gone beyond the boundaries of, of storytelling. And he has, you know, dabbled in some plagiarism um, as well as recycling of his work. And people are, are sort of awestruck by this. And I think I am, too, because here's someone who is a Rhodes Scholar, mm-hmm. incredibly smart, and somehow got into this, I guess you could say, this vortex of lies that sort of spun out of control. And so we want to look at that a little bit today. Why would someone jump into that scenario when they had all the tools at their disposal and all the creativity that they ever wanted? Why would they sort of rationalize this step into the darkness? Yeah, because, I mean, another big story out of the year was the Mike Daisy affair with the whole Apple and uh, 
uh, you know, Mr. Daisy visits the Apple factory, uh, which is part of a, a spoken word piece that he did on This American Life. But the ultimate excuse there, whether you, you buy it or not, was that he's a storyteller first that sort of found himself wandering into journalistic territory. Mm-hmm. Whereas Joan Allaire was already in the journalistic ter- territory. He was just using storytelling uh, a lot to to his advantage. And then it all fell apart from there. Right. Almost in Lair's uh, instance, you could kind of see him saying, it wouldn't be awesome if, if Dylan said this yeah. or, you know, amended his quote with this uh, to make that story even stronger. And in some ways, I see that with Daisy. But I think what's intriguing about both of them is, is that I think we can all relate to this. There have been instances in our lives where we maybe took some um, creative license mm-hmm. and we distorted the truth. So it's sort of interesting to look at why we might do that. Yeah, because when Wired actually hired a journalism professor, Charles Seif, to look into his work for Wired, uh, he found various instances of uh, recycling. This is Lair, right? Yeah, this is Lair. Uh, recycling, which, of course, is just using bits from an, one article you wrote for another, often for a different employer. A.K.A. getting paid twice. Right. <laughs> press release plagiarism, which, of course, is you're sent a press release, and it it is a write-up of something that somebody did, and then you're supposed to take that information and then make it your own, to gather some other sources, get some quotes, uh, etc. But it's then just taking from the uh, the press release, and that's something that I guess can sometimes be lost on people who aren't actually handling press releases on one side or the other. Accusations of plagiarism, the quotation issues that we mentioned, and some factual issues as well. So the errors there that were found by this guy that they ranged from some things that some listeners may be surprised to learn that that's a problem because after all what's wrong with reusing something you've said we do it every time that we uh, tell a joke and it works right then you maybe tweak it a little but reuse the same joke later on but it's different if somebody's paying you for that joke and then you are reselling the same joke to someone else who thinks it's also theirs uniquely yeah and i think the problem too is that he was looking at something like 18 different writings yeah uh, that were published online and i don't i believe that he just sort of cherry picked them i don't think that he intentionally Mm -hmm. chose these ones, and he discovered that 14 out of the 18 had the recycled um, content in them. So, um, you know, this is not a condemnation of Lair, because again, I think this is someone who is incredibly talented, and I hope that he bounces back from this. It's just a good example of what we're talking about yeah. today. And in fact, some would, would actually say that Lair's predicament is really more of an indirect result of how things are published these days, because right. back in the day, you know, even 20 years ago, the content would have gone through at least five different people for, you know, fact-checkers to editors to make sure that, that all of that was correct. So in some ways, we have a much wider scope in which we can operate because of the technology available to us. Yeah. Uh, and you'll see that across all sorts of fields, like accounting. There's, you know, there's a little bit more margin for error, I guess you could say. Right, yeah. And also, he was obviously a big name. And so when he began to fall, a lot of eyes went on to his work and mm-hmm. picked him to pieces. So you can also say that say that there are, there are plenty of other cases of people committing the same uh, journalistic crimes, if you will, out there. They just don't have as many eyes on, on what they're doing. All right. So enough of these transgressions. Let's talk about uh, where it all happens is creativity, in particular, our brains. Yeah. I guess the, the best place to start is with the, the old idea of left and right brain. And this came out of 1970s. Uh, there were various studies of split-brain patients looking at this idea that the right hemisphere control creativity and uh, that the uh, the left hemisphere is the seat of logic and mathematics and all. So 
everyone loved this. I mean, there's a, the, the duality of it is, is kind of beautiful. There's this uh, star-bellied sneeches kind of aspect <laughs> of it, too, yeah. where it's like, oh, are you are you part of Team Edward or Team, uh, what's the other team? Jacob. Team Jacob, you know? Are you Team Creativity I like how you're pretending like you don't know what the other team is. I know. Yeah, you can't see my T-shirt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So everyone loved this idea. It was simple. It resonated, and people liked to try to decide which team they were on. But since that time, there have been a lot more studies into it. In, in looking at exactly how the brain works mm-hmm. and, and how the brain works with creativity, this whole field, in fact, of neuroaesthetics, right, which is a scientific attempt to understand the human brain's aesthetic perceptions of art, music, what have you. Yeah, at the neurological level. Right. Um, there's an interesting study from the University of South Carolina, and, uh, again, it just it exploits this idea that... It's not just a, you know, two-party system in the brain, that it really takes the two halves of the brain to tango when it comes to creativity. And Lisa Aziz Zadeh, who is the assistant professor of neuroscience, and her team scanned the brains of architecture students. And they did this because, obviously, architecture students are engaging um, what you would say is both sides of the right. brain. Right. There's They'll, an art side to it, but then there's also engineering to it. Yeah, well. there's the spatial part of it. So they were shown three shapes, a circle, a C, and an eight, and they were then asked to visualize the images that could be made by rearranging those shapes. So this takes a little bit of creativity, right? Because, for example, a face could be made with the eight on its side to become the eyes. The C could be a smiling mouth or a frown. And then the uh, circle could be a nose. Hmm. Okay, so that requires a little bit of your brain to say, oh, what you know, what could I paint with these objects? It's interesting when you said those. I, I kind of intentionally misheard C. Instead mm-hmm. of picturing the uh, the letter C, I pictured an ocean, and so I imagine oh. like this figure eight tower rising out of an ocean, and then the circle is an eye at the top of it. That's because you're a crazy divergent thinker, which we'll talk about later. Okay, or my hearing sucks. One of the two. Well, yeah, that's possible as well. Um, but I also sometimes talk really fast. Yes. So that could be a problem. Uh, but anyway, they were then asked to engage in what would be a more spatial sort of task. And so they were asked to piece together three geometric shapes with their minds to see if they formed a square or a rectangle. Now, the creative task, even though it was mainly handled by the right hemisphere, lit up the left hemisphere more than the non-creative task. And this was really a surprise to them because you would think that the spatial reasoning, the, the geometric part of it, would engage less of the left side. But in fact, they found that even the left side was there, um, that w- it was more prevalent, too, in the creative side. So again, you see that it's not just one seat of the brain where creativity is occurring. And it's lending, again, to this idea of neuroaesthetics, that there's a lot more to creativity than we know. So in, in effect, Duality is kind of a, a misnomer, the, especially as far as uh, the brain is concerned, that, that any kind of creative or even engineering task is not one side or the other, but both sides working in some degree of harmony. Right. And then to add to all of this, you have different aspects of what is happening inside of the brain affecting how data is being perceived and mm-hmm. interpreted. And again, this is where we have novel ideas being generated. So... This is when we begin to talk about mental illness and creativity because, you know, this is a subject that has been explored a lot more like, hey, there's that Van Gogh and so creative, but had this unfortunate side effect of hallucinations and cutting off his ear and so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, it's 
the idea of the unhinged creative type is an old notion, and, mm-hmm. and we continue to to carry it along with us. Sometimes we use it as a means of forgiving our uh, our own problems, or or to sort of uh, to to make sense of the chaotic lives of individuals whose whose lives are illuminated by the fame they've amassed. Yeah, and so I mean, it does, here's the thing: it just, being creative does not mean that you are mentally ill. Right. Okay, what it means is that there are some markers that mentally ill people have with creative, highly creative people. Right, and, and then vice versa as well. Right. I mean, certainly, just like the average person who has. Uh, some sort of uh, severe mental illness, it's not going to translate directly into creative output. And we'll explore that a little more as we progress. Again, what we're talking about is stimuli and the interpretation of that. Mm -hmm. Here's something that's interesting. High creative skills have been shown to be somewhat more common in people who have mental illness, as we've talked about. But the connection here, they think, has to do with the dopamine system. Because researchers at the Swedish Medical University Karolinska Institute uh, Instituet, have managed to show that the, this dopamine system in healthy, highly creative people is really similar in respects to people with schizophrenia, uh, specifically when we talk about mental illness. And it all has to do with the thalamus, which is a part of the brain that acts as the relay center, filtering information before it reaches the cortex where reasoning and cognition occur. So it turns out that people who are highly creative and schizophrenic people have fewer dopamine receptors in the thalamus than other people. And this is really important because, uh, again, this is sort of telling us about how data comes through our brains and how it is interpreted. Now, when I talk about highly creative people in the study, what we're talking about are healthy individuals who have been tested on divergent psychological tests. And this is certain kinds of tests that are looking at how you solve things. So it would require a novel approach, right? right? And this is how they sort of weed out who's highly creative and who's not in this particular study. So the idea is that the fewer D2 receptors in the thalamus probably means a lower degree of signal filtering and then a higher flow of information from the thalamus. And this is why you see this correlation between people who are schizophrenic and people who are highly creative or highly imaginative because what you're seeing is, again, a flooding of stimuli to the brain and then this idea that you have to sort through it. Right. This is similar to what we've talked about in the way children perceive the world, the idea that their their brains are sponges, and mm-hmm. it's just stuff just flowing in, and then they have to make sense of it all. So the, I guess this brings us to, to the question, then, well, what's going on in the rest of the brains, right? What what do the muggles have going on that, uh, <laughs> that prevents them from uh, seeing and creating the magic uh, in the world around them or from suffering from severe schizophrenia? Well, I mean, part of it is that, again, you have so much stimulation there. And, and mm-hmm. if you can cherry pick some from that stimulation, you begin to make bizarre associations because you're simply aware of that much stuff in your brain. Right. And in fact, it, it reminds me just, a, you know, a little side trip here. It reminds me of the cognitive psychologist, Alison Gopnik, when she was talking about infants having this uh, lantern awareness versus adults having flashlight awareness because she's saying that infants are far more conscious than adults because they're taking in everything. And if you look at their brains, you can see that that, neurotransmitters are squirted all over that brain, marinating in it, and it allows them to have the neural connections to process all of that data. Okay. And so she's made that comment before of, you know, this is perhaps the reason why some creative thinkers... Um, have the breakthroughs that they can because they are sort of holding on to a bit of that infant brain and that lantern awareness. Yeah, so so to take us back to our 
unrealistic caveman uh, examples. <laughs> you have uh, a, a grown-up caveman who has who's completely grown up, not creative at all, but he's he's very much focused on what's important. Is that a tiger over there behind those bushes, or is it a gazelle? Am I about to be eaten, or am I about to score some dinner? Whereas, uh, in, in everything else, kind of fades into the background, right? Only focused on what's most important to survival at this moment. Whereas his friend, his more creatively inclined caveman, might look over at a tree and think to himself, I wonder if that tree is a woman who was somehow petrified by a god or something, because it kind of looks like a woman. So he's staring at this tree, risking consumption by the tiger or missing out on a meal, whereas the, the hunter is focused on what is actually occurring. Yeah, you can't be, uh, you can't be painting little happy trees in your mind right. in that scenario. But but on one level, you can sort of say, okay, well, one caveman is daydreaming and one is serious about the task at hand. But then it, you can also look at it in terms of one has shut off unnecessary stimuli mm-hmm. and the other one is remaining open to stimuli even if the input of said stimuli is not immediately relevant to basic survival. Okay, so what you're talking about is a process called latent inhibition. Yes. Yeah. And uh, University of Tennessee psychology professor Jordan Peterson says, quote, the normal person classifies an object and then forgets about it, even though that object is much more complex and interesting than he or she thinks. The creative person, by contrast, is always open to new possibilities. So, again, here's this idea that you're able to look at these objects and pay more attention to them than your counterpart, right? Yeah. It also reminds me of vampires. I guess uh, vampires have no latent inhibition because there's the old uh, idea that you could leave like something with an intricate weave pattern out for oh, them right. or a knot, and they would have to sit there and untangle it even though the sun is about to come up and melt them. Well, and speaking of, of, of vampires, we should talk about how this plays into personality because mm-hmm. there's something called the schizotypal personality. Yes. Now, this is um, sort of typified by luminaries like Albert Einstein or Tesla, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of points a little bit more to their preoccupations, which some people might think are odd, right? Um, I'm thinking about Nikola Tesla and his obsession with, well, this is more toward the end of his life, so there might have been more going on with it, but his obsession with a certain pigeon that he fell in love with. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. Uh, but he fed the, he fed her day in and day out, and... Uh, and was sort of obsessed with this, just as he was obsessed with many of his scientific discoveries and his endeavors. But at, at play here is this idea that these people may be engaging in a kind of more magical reality than the rest of us. Yeah, there's an article by Margarita Tartakovsky in Psych Central where uh, she actually goes through some of the forms that uh, schizotypal personalities take. And, uh, for instance, there's magical thinking is one possibility, and uh, she points out that you had the composer Schumann who believed that Beethoven was channeling music to him from beyond the grave. Another uh, form that this uh, condition takes, unusual perceptional experiences, and she draws the analogy here to Dickens' belief that he was being followed by characters from his novels. That's right. Didn't he use an umbrella to poke away at the little street Street urchins? urchins. Yeah. Yeah, imaginary street urchins. There you go. And then there's also a preference for solitary activities, which mm-hmm. obviously you see in a lot of creative types. And uh, the author here pointed out Emily Dickinson, uh, Tesla, Isaac Newton, you know, anybody who likes to shut themselves away and work on something you could also uh, 
throw J.D. Salinger, any number of authors and, and artists into that pot. And then uh, finally, uh, another form it takes is mild paranoia. And uh, there are various examples of this where authors, artists, creative types begin to have peculiar ideas about what is threatening them in the world and where those threats lie. So this uh, schizotype personality is not obviously a full-blown schizophrenia disorder. Right. It's just someone who is who processes things a little bit differently. Right. No, and it's, yeah, it's not to the point where it's necessarily just really tapping down on your ability to function, mm-hmm. but it is certainly changing the ways in which you function in an otherwise normal uh, situation. Yeah, researchers at Vanderbilt University have actually looked specifically at this schizotype to try to figure out how their brains work, particularly in conjunction with, or I should say in contrast, to a schizophrenic's brain and then someone who's quote-unquote normal. Um, Brad Foley in Sohe Park actually published their findings in the Journal of Schizophrenia Research. And so they looked at these three groups, the control, the, the schizotypes, and the schizophrenics. And in the first experiment, they showed research subjects a variety of household objects. And they asked them to make up new functions for them. And the schizotypes were better able to creatively suggest new uses for the objects, while the schizophrenics, interestingly enough, and the average subjects performed similarly to one another. Mm-hmm. And so what they think is that it's that uh, the schizophrenics were unable to generate new uses because their thought processes are very often disorganized to the point to where they can't be creative because they can't get all of their thoughts in one coherent place. So the normal so, person is more, again, mm-hmm. uh, the flashlight view of yeah. reality. But then the schizophrenic individual, it's that lamp view, but the lamp is turned up so much that there's just too much information coming at them, and it's just zipping around in their mind in such a chaotic uh, way, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so Well, sort of like the, the normal person has the flashlight, mm-hmm. and the schizotype and the schizophrenic have the lantern. Mm-hmm. But the, the difference is that the schizotype can really pick out the things that matter because they can sort of have some of that focus and make those connections, whereas you say there's so much going on in the schizophrenic brain that they can't really make a coherent story there. Right. So they did a second experiment. They are asked to identify new uses for everyday objects again, but as well um, they performed a basic control task while the activity in their prefrontal lobes were monitored. Uh, so what they found in these brain scans is that all groups use both brains for creative tasks. Again, here's this idea of both brains being engaged. Um, but the activation of the right hemispheres of the schizotypes was dramatically greater than the schizophrenic and the average subject. So this suggests that there is a positive benefit to, schizo- uh, to schizotypy and that, again, their brains are accessing information in a different way and that they're a lot more able to sort of go between both hemispheres and, and work a little bit more diligently to produce novel concepts. So here's another interesting thing. Uh, Peter Brueger is a Swiss neuroscientist, and so he's kind of said, like, yeah, I think that these schizotypes are different thinkers, and I think that, you know, the part of the brain that says, hey, that's a car key on your keychain, and, you know, identifying that is a little bit different with a schizotype's brain because they think can imagine different fates for that, you know, car key or Mm. whatever. But he is saying that there is a disproportional number of schizotypes and schizophrenics that are neither right or left-handed dominant, right? Mm -hmm. And they instead use both hands for a bunch of things, for a bunch of tasks. And so he's saying, again, I think that this, you know, the, the motor function and the mind function are 
interwoven here and that they're recruiting both sides of their brains for these tasks. And there's something a little bit different going on with the schizotype. So there's a little insight into what's going on inside the creative process, inside the human mind, and also how this crosses over into the territory of mental illness. So as promised, we are going to discuss this link, this idea that creativity and dishonesty are actually uh, linked together, that there's some crossover here. And uh, it's after, after what we've discussed, what do you think? Ignoring the study that we've, we've both read and, and, and have notes about, uh, would you be convinced at this point that, that these individuals we've discussed might also have uh, a particular flair for dishonesty? Um, I think that it, it makes total sense that if, if you're creative and you make up stuff, Mm-hmm. That, that it would lend itself to fibbing every once in a while or sort of moving the goalpost of what you think is appropriate, either behavior or or, um, or, or just even what you report in life to be truth. I, I'll buy that, yeah. Now, that's not to say I don't think that, you know, all creative people are dishonest. Right. And, and certainly nobody in the study that we're about to, to look at is arguing that, that this is a rallying cry to go and collect the creative types and, and keep them under tight watch because they're just lying their faces off nonstop. It's just showing that there's a certain correlation between the two. Well, and what we're going to discuss um, are studies that were conducted in the lab under very specific circumstances. Yep. And uh, just as we found in our lying podcast, How Lying Works, um, there there's a bunch of motivating factors here for why people lie right. or engage in creative storytelling i.e. lying. So the study in question comes to us from uh, Francesca Gino and Dan Airely. It's a fascinating five-part study where they, uh, where they basically did five different experiments to, to test creative and non-creative types and see what their propensity for falsehood happened to be. Yeah, because there are a bunch of different studies out there looking at creativity and dishonesty, but as the author, Scott Barry Kaufman, in his article, The Dark Side of Creativity on Huffington Post, points out they are really after pinning uh, dishonesty to creativity and to creative types. And they really are. I mean, not because they have some sort of vendetta against yeah, creative make it sound, They're waging a war on the creatives. Let me say this. They are very thorough in investigating this <laughs> idea, perhaps more thorough than some other studies. As you say, it's a five-part study. And in the first of their studies... Uh, they administered a variety of different measures of creativity, assessing a person's creative personality, uh, behaviors, and cognitive style. So yes. first they weeded out what they thought was um, were more creative people. Yeah, because you have to get that sort of down for your test subjects. These are the creative right. people in, uh, in Block A. These are the muggles in Block B. Right. As you say, the muggles, yes. Uh, the participants also completed a visual perception task. In this task, participants were presented with a bunch of squares that were bisected by a diagonal line. Yeah, so it's a square, cut down the middle, the next two triangles. Yeah, and on either side of the line, there are an array of dots. Yeah, like a scattering of red dots that seem almost random, like somebody just threw them up there so that... In some cases, you might have uh, it might be kind of ambiguous as to which side of the square had more dots, and in other cases, it's very obvious when you look at it that most of the dots are in one side or the other. Now, the uh, participants don't know this, but all of the the dots on the right hand side are going to be less than the left in every single instance. And if they report, uh, and then in the participants' findings, if they report that. Uh, the right side has more dots, they actually are going to get ten times the amount 
in money. I think it's oh, it's okay. So. Okay, well, yeah. Let me let me back up. Um, if they report that it's the left side that has more dots, they'll get a half a cent. Right. Okay. Now, if they report that it's the right side, they'll get five cents. It's important though to to point this out that it's you're talking about a piddling amount of money involved here. Right. It's it's nothing, right? So right. it's not a huge motivator. You're not going to walk away away from this study saying, "Oh man, I'm quitting my job." Yeah. No matter what financial problems led you to take part in this uh, and blow a Saturday in this scientific study uh, for for these guys, this is not going to make a difference. Okay. So they're getting five cents for reporting on the right. They're getting a half a cent for the left. And this is creating a conflict between providing the correct answer, yeah. right? So as you said, some of these arrays are really obvious. It's like, yes, there's no doubt that the right side only has three dots and the left side has 50 dots. Right. But some of them were more ambiguous. And that's where they see the uh, the lying happening the most. And it's kind of a brilliant way to construct or design this experiment because I wanted to point this out. We've talked about this before, that we are all sort of born accountants. We can look at arrays of dots like this, and even if it's a little bit ambiguous, you can already tell which pot has more dots in it, right. um, which array it has more is more populated. That's just going to become obvious. But the fact that there's just, you know, it's a little bit into question, it's a little bit ambiguous, gives people this license, particularly creative individuals, to interpret the data so that it suits them. Yeah, in other words, it, when it's ambiguous enough, they're willing to err on the side of me getting a nickel uh, as opposed to being factually uh, accurate. I mean, you get it from the, the, the study that it's this is really occurring on almost a, like a really subconscious level. It's not like somebody saying, oh, well, all sides being equal, I'd rather get that nickel. I'm going to vote for this one. They've kind of programmed them ahead of time with the knowledge that uh, all things being equal, one side is more advantageous, even if it we're talking, again, about just a nickel's worth of advantage. Well, and then uh, you might think to yourself, okay, so the creative individual is more prone to lying or being dishonest. Um, what about someone with a high IQ? Could they perhaps uh, try to figure out a way to deceive better? After all, you know, you would think that they'd be able to sort of navigate the, the waters of dishonesty a little bit better. Yeah, and that's where the second study comes in. They add in uh, intelligence as a possible predictor of dishonesty. And uh, they found that when it was intelligence versus creativity, creativity was still the better indicator on who was going to be dishonest on this test. So, again, in the first study, we had the creatives and the non-creatives as judged by some of the initial weeding out process, right? So now you have more than just creative and uncreative. You have high IQ, low IQ thrown in. And, again, they're they're finding that if if you were going to bet money on which ones were going to fib a little uh, when the ambiguity hits, it's going to be the creative people. Book on the creative people instead of trying to book on the highly intelligent people. Okay, so in their third study, they stick the knife in just a little bit deeper by saying, okay, what if someone just engaged in the act of creativity itself? Would that make that person more dishonest? Yeah, what if we just sort of buttered them up and made them feel a little creative? You know, because even non-creative types, you feel you may wake up one morning and you're you're feeling like, you know, I'm not going to go to work today, I'm going to paint. You know, because maybe you saw a documentary on painting last night, and that's what did it. So they couldn't actually show someone a documentary on painting here, (laughs) but what they did is that they had participants construct sentences from a list of grammatically correct words. So they had a bunch of words to choose from. But the words that they had to choose from, most of them were creative in some sense, like creative, innovative, imagination. So they were priming them to think in a creative sense. 
And so the uh, the question was, will this make people more inclined to cheat on on our little dot test if they just are, are thinking about creativity? It did. It did. It yep. did. And that's the the kind of awful realization that comes into play here is that it's not just you know a creative person is more prone to be dishonest. It's that engaging in creativity will actually lead to the possibility in this in this example at least of someone again sort of recasting what reality is telling a different story telling a lie essentially their fourth study was again another um variation on this theme of the the visual perception task the dot arrays but instead of now priming them with uh creative terms they now just had them go through divergent thinking tasks. Mm. Now, divergent thinking, again, is something that will ramp up creativity. They saw the same thing again and again. The people who are engaging in the creative divergent thinking task were prone to be more dishonest. Their fifth study, as if they hadn't made the case already, yeah. uh, they had an online survey of 17 departments in a corporation, and they had those people talk about uh, different instances where they could be more honest or dishonest, basically uh, going through these sort of like integrity scenarios. Um, And then, so they had those people sort of say what they would do in these certain situations. And then they had the people rank what they did in their job. And it was found that those people who were the more creative types in the creative departments, again, were more prone to be dishonest in these scenarios that they laid out for them. The last one particularly I found kind of interesting because I wonder to what extent of it is just a matter of having a, a creative enough mind to to put yourself in the shoes of this uh, this hypothetical individual that you're being surveyed about. You know? Oh, you think they're drawing on their empathy? Well, I wonder to what extent it's kind of an empathy test as well because I, I find that there I will hear, hear horrible cases or, or you know read a book about a particularly horrible character and if it's if it's you know if it's well presented in the novel, or you get enough details about the the human side of an individual, then you I find on some level I can empathize with them and may, maybe not agree with them completely, but I'm more I'm di- I'm less inclined to say oh we'll ship that person to the bottom of the sea. Well, okay, I think the takeaway from here is that if particularly if you are a human resources person and you're listening to this and you're just about to batten down the hatches on all the creative types. In your company, don't do it. Um, the point is, is that uh, you know, creativity you have got to have if you want some sort of novel way of approaching the world and right. problems. It's, it's central to us as humans. But I guess you could say that you'd have to have things pretty well, uh, the boundaries pretty well set in a work situation, so that it's very apparent uh, what the rules are and what they aren't. Because again, what we're talking about here is interpretation. Right. Because again. Where did we see the dishonesty arising? It was in this um, this area of ambiguity. Mm-hmm. The idea of well, I don't know if there are more dots on one side or the other, but I can. I'm going to use my creative thinking to sort of skew it in my advantage. If you avoid um, this moral gray area, it's going to make it a lot easier for people to do the right thing. Yeah, and I will say, you know, for our own department, I would say there are a lot of creative types in it. But everybody, uh, I want to say, it has a ton of integrity. And I think some in part because we have a ton of work and we have really strict deadlines. Yeah. There's no really, I mean, it's pretty obvious what the boundaries are. Well, and also, I, it comes down to the yogurt in the fridge example here. You just throw some tasty-looking yogurt in the fridge, there's a chance somebody's going to eat that. But if you put your name on it, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a rare individual who will eat your yogurt because... 
it's there's the name right there. That is that is Sarah's yogurt. And if you eat that yogurt, you were stealing from Sarah. You were messing with her 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 yogurt vibe. You can no longer objectify yeah. Sarah and the yogurt. Yeah, right? you can't say I took a yogurt. I borrowed a yogurt. No, it's I took Sarah's yogurt, and it's a different uh, thing entirely. It's a less gray, ambiguous zone. And we saw this too in the lying podcast is that that people who were <laughs> forced to read a statement of integrity and then mm-hmm. sign it and then take a test were less likely, much, 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 much less likely to cheat because they had gone through the act of this is what the rules are and do you agree with these rules? Yes, I do. Yeah. So, again, yeah, there's not too much ambiguity there. All right. Well, uh, on that note, let's call the robot over. All right. And we have a little listener mail here from our mechanical friend. Uh, This one comes to us from Brian. Brian says, Dear Robert and Julie, I enjoyed your podcast on comfort. Well done, as always. It was bittersweet, however, on the first day back to work and college in about five hours after a nice long holiday weekend. Insert sad trombone here. I don't know. That's not really... There you go. Anyway, the big reason I wanted to send out an email was a correction. Not a mean one. I'm not one of those listeners. Don't worry. The end quote that Robert mentioned that was from Aristotle is actually from a poem by Philip James Bailey. As much as I love Aristotle, I figured Philip James Bailey shouldn't have his thunder stolen. Uh, There's my two cents. Uh, Maybe one cent to help you guys out. Keep up the good work, and thank you for all your efforts. And indeed, the quote in question, so everyone doesn't have to rack their brain to figure out what I said, was, we live in deeds, not years, in thoughts, not breaths, in feelings, not in figures on a dial. We should count time by heart throbs. He most lives, who thinks most, feels the noblest, acts the best. And uh, yes, as it turns out, that is a Philip James Bailey quote, not an Aristotle quote, which I uh, I think I picked that up from a Psychology Today blog post that had it. Uh, uh, apparently, that quote is applied incorrectly to Aristotle and a few different sources. But that's my bad for not checking uh, primaries on that one. Uh, (laughs) See, that sounds more like a Brady Bunch trombone. Yeah, or a grown-up on Peanuts. So if the rest of you would like to uh, chime in with uh, corrections, with praise, with examples of creativity in your own life, we'd love to hear about it. Specifically, what do you think about this crossover between creativity and dishonest? If you're a creative person, do you feel like you're a little more inclined to be dishonest? If you're you're not really creative, you're more of the logical, mathematical side of things, what's your approach to all this? What do you think? Do you distrust the creatives in your environment? Or are you actually the greatest liar of them all and you're just that good? that these tests aren't catching you. I don't know. Write us in. Let us know about it. We'd love to hear. You can reach us on Facebook. You can reach us on Tumblr. We are stuffed to blow your mind on both of those. And we're also on Twitter, where our handle is Blow the Mind. And you can always send us a line at blowthemind@discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Brought to you by the 2012 Toyota Camry. It's ready. Are you?